to open uh, in front of you to 1 Samuel 14. That would be a great help as we work through that text this morning. Let me just ask the Lord's help once more before we do so. Father, we ask that you would give us soft hearts, ears to hear, and eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine with me this morning as we begin three different scenarios to do with cliffs and scaling cliffs. First scenario, we're very well familiar, many of us who have grown up either in this country or uh, in my home country of the United States with the stories of what happened on D-Day on the beaches of Normandy. So the British commandos and the American soldiers, many of them landing, pinned down beneath the cliffs there on the beaches of Normandy, and yet managing, many of them, against all odds, to scale those cliffs against an enemy who had a superior position, superior power, and up over the top, taking out those installations so that the invasion was a success. Those soldiers had something to be proud about because their ingenuity, their dedication, their taking the cliff was worthy of praise. Second scenario, much less um, famous, my own scenario of climbing a cliff. When I was 20 years old, driving up the California coast with some friends on spring break, and we stopped off to camp various beaches along the way and thought, oh, it'd be good to do some rock climbing on the cliffs. Surely that'll give us a nice view. And so up I go, uh, up the cliff, and come to a nice ledge that looks from below as if it would be a nice lookout, only to find, as I come up over the top, a rattlesnake waiting there to greet me. Superior force. And in the face of that force, I made my way very quickly back down the cliff. I made no, uh, uh, no, I didn't act as if I was going to be able to take out the rattlesnake. I got back down to the beach as quickly as I could. Beaches of Normandy, beaches of California. But in our text, a different scenario isn't there to do with climbing a cliff and taking out a superior force at the top. It's Jonathan and his armor-bearer here in 1 Samuel 14, who, against all odds, going through this wadi and up the rocky crags, go over the top and take out the Philistines. And yet, they do it not by their own force and ingenuity, but rather by the power of Yahweh, the Lord, who goes before them. And that, for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is going to form the focal point of our study of this text, 1 Samuel 14, 1 to 23. Because right there at the top of that cliff, and in everything we're given around it in this chapter, we see that it is Yahweh, the Lord, who is strong and mighty to save. Indeed, if we take the words from Jonathan's lips In verse 6, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. So we're going to look at our text to see just how that is so, and we'll look at it from three vantage points. First of all, we'll have a look at Saul's folly. Saul's folly. Secondly, we'll look at Jonathan's faith. And finally, we will dwell on Yahweh, the Lord who is faithful to save. 
So Saul's folly, Jonathan's faith, and Yahweh, who is faithful to save. Let's begin, however, by setting just a bit of context. Uh, We don't have the advantage of having been going through 1 Samuel in a series, and so you may or may not have fresh in your mind the first 13 chapters of this book in the Old Testament. Let me recap of the highlights briefly for you so that you can better appreciate what we come to here in chapter 14. Back in chapter 8, Israel has told Samuel, the judge, we want a king. And they've gone against the Lord in saying so. And so in chapter 9, the Lord grants them their wish. He grants them Saul as their king. And then already from chapter 12 onward, we begin to see that Israel is reaping the whirlwind of their desires because In asking for a king, in receiving a king, just like those of the nations around them, they are now subject to the whims of a fallen and sinful king in the person of Saul. And so in chapter 12, Samuel says in verses 15 to 18, But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your father's. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Already this early in the story, Samuel, the spokesman for Yahweh, tells the people unequivocally that they have sinned, they have rebelled against the Lord in asking for this king, and yet they have him. They're stuck with Saul. And so what happens as we come into chapters 13 and 14 is that we see the steady and the tragic decline of Saul. What started with such promise in some ways, a man who stood head and shoulders above others, a man whom... Uh, who wasn't seeking the kingship for himself, but whom the Lord anointed and selected, is now a man who bit by bit turns his back from God, rebels himself against God, and leads the people tragically with him in this descent. So in chapter 13, Samuel has told Saul, wait for me, wait for me to come, and I will offer the sacrifices. But Saul gets anxious. Saul's worried because the Philistine forces are massing against the Israelites and his people are fleeing from him and they are hiding in holes and caves in the ground, melting away from him. And he's afraid. And Samuel still hasn't shown up. And so what does he do? He goes against the word of the Lord in the mouth of the prophet Samuel and he offers sacrifice on his own. And then Samuel arrives And again reminds him, you have not obeyed the word of the Lord. You have rebelled against God by not obeying his word. So Saul's descent continues. And that's what brings us to our text this morning in chapter 14. In fact, if we take chapters 13 and 14 as whole, there's almost a beautiful triptych that we can imagine. Three sort of portraits set side by side. The other two uh, are very dark, dealing with Saul. Chapter 13... And what comes after our text in chapter 14, very dark because of Saul's sin, Saul's folly. But here, right in the middle of those two darker panels, comes a 
brilliant, bright panel focused on Saul's son, Jonathan, who's heroic, who's full of faith. And as we see Jonathan emerging as this kind of character in the midst of his father's sin and rebellion, we see several things that begin to surface for us in this narrative. In fact, it's almost as if we can picture this uh, in, in sort of cinematic uh, manner, as if we've got three different camera angles. So we were watching a, a movie just Friday night with my boys where there's a clifftop scene, and the camera's there behind the characters as they lower someone down on a rope over the top of the, the cliff. And then there's a helicopter camera, and you get the, the big view from afar. And then there's the view from below. We get that kind of view here in the narrative, don't we? Look with me, if you would. First of all, we get a camera angle from the perspective of Jonathan and his armor-bearer in the early opening chapters of this, uh, verses of this chapter. We're with Jonathan. The camera is looking through Jonathan's eyes across to the top of this cliff where the Philistine outpost or garrison is. And it's through his eyes, from that perspective, that we begin the approach of courage and faith. But then, very briefly, we get the camera view, the angle from the top of the cliff, the Philistines looking down, uh, and you can almost hear the derision and the scorn in their voice when they say, look, look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes. They really have been in holes, we were told in chapter 13. They're coming out of their holes. Come on up, we'll teach you a lesson or two. And then a third camera angle. Later on, as Saul begins to hear tumult, far across the valley and looks and sees that something is happening, something's going on. But each different camera angle centering us on the same place, the same event, what it is that's going on just there at the top of that cliff. And so that's where our focus will be. And we'll see as we go through this text several things happening. First of all, Jonathan is beginning to be separated out from Saul isn't he? So verse 1, right at the end there, Jonathan leaves without telling his father. His father doesn't know what he's doing. Then in verse 17, a bit further down, we see that Saul sees that something's going on, and he asks his men to check out who's left us, who's left us. Saul's not aware that Jonathan's gone, but it turns out it is Jonathan and his armor bearer who have left. And later on, beyond the scope of what we will look at in detail this morning, in verse 27, Jonathan then, after the battle, has not heard a word, uh, a command his father to refrain from eating. He eats some honey, and as a result, his father says, I'm going to kill you because you've broken the oath that I enjoined upon all the people. Steadily, Jonathan is being separated out from Saul. Jonathan is a character in the narrative who is commendable, commendable for his faith and for his faithfulness. And that will continue right on through the narrative of 1 Samuel. Saul, on the other hand, is tragically going lower and lower in his sin and his folly. We also see a theme emerging in our text of panic and confusion, don't we? So in verse 15, then in verses 19 and 20, what happens there at that clifftop? It's panic, it's confusion, it's thunder, it's an earthquake. The Lord himself, as we have seen him do, if we've read earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, comes again in powerful presence to thunder against the enemies of his people. We also see that Saul, as he uh, loses his grip, 
is an ill-informed and indecisive king, leader of God's people. Verses 17 through 19. But once more, I want to emphasize that at the center of this passage, on the lips of Jonathan in verse 6, and at the end of our passage in verse 23, the pinnacle of what's going on here is that it is Yahweh who is faithful to save. It is Yahweh who works salvation for his people. Well, let's have a closer look at Saul's folly. If we turn back just again to chapter 13, in verses 13 and 14 there, we see the foolishness and the sinful rebellion of Saul. Samuel says in verse 13 of chapter 13, You acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him as leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It's Saul's disobedience that leads to his disgrace and really the disintegration of any kind of dynastic hopes that he might have had. It could have been Jonathan on the throne next. But no, the Lord has now removed that dynasty from Saul and has said he will have a man after his own heart who will take the throne. Already we see intimations, don't we, of David, the king who will follow, and of that greater David who will come to save his people. But in chapter 14, it's Saul's own son, who should have been the heir apparent, who should have been the next king, that proves himself courageous and full of faith. While Saul, what does Saul do? Well, verse 2 tells us, depending on your translation, he's cowering either under a tree or in a cave, isn't he? Just there near Gibeah. In verse 3, who is Saul surrounded by? He's surrounded by the old guard that the Lord has already shown his disapproval of. It's the line of Eli, that priest whose sons were so sinful in the opening chapters of First Samuel, that dynasty that has begun to be wiped out and will become obsolete. Saul is surrounded by these men. Why? Verse 17, as we mentioned, Saul's not in control of the situation. He doesn't even know what his own son is doing. And when he does hear the tumult across the way, he, he freezes. He doesn't know how to respond. He calls the priest in. He asks for the ark to come. He's indecisive. And it's not until he's finally borne along by the events of the day that he goes forth into battle. Verse 18 and following, Saul has no prophet of the Lord near him to tell him what to do. This will become even clearer in the rest of chapter 14, that the Lord has removed his word from Saul. The king no longer has a word from the Lord upon which to rely. And so as a result, Saul is reduced to a nominal character in this episode. He is the king, but he's almost completely on the periphery of the action. It is a tragic decline as we watch Saul reap the consequences of his disregard and disobedience for the word of the Lord. That's where it all stems from for Saul. Let's reflect just for a moment on Saul here. Saul is not, please hear this, he is not here in this text, a negative profile for leadership. In other words, we don't look at Saul and try to ask, well, what should we not do in order that the Lord might bless us? That's not how we ought to read his decline. Instead, what we see here 
as we consider Saul's place in this unfolding narrative of God's redemption in 1 Samuel, is that the people's rejection of God as their king is now boomeranging back upon them. And they are reaping the consequences as their king, too, has rejected God, rejected his word. He's fearful. He's self-dependent. He's leading blind. And the whole ship is going down rapidly. It's the rejection of God and his word that is at the root of this decline. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. There are dangers for us as well as we respond to the word of God, to the commands of God, to the clear teaching that God gives us in his word. Our God is a God who is king. Our God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the same God we see here on the pages of 1 Samuel. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the one who thunders mightily, the one who is sovereign over all creation. And he is the one who has spoken to us in his word. How do we respond to his word? How do we respond to his commands? Do we respond with obedient, thankful, humble hearts? Or do we, like Saul and the Israelites, far more often respond with selfish, proud, rebellious hearts, thinking that we know better than God, thinking that we can depend upon our own wisdom rather than listen to God's commands. If so, brothers and sisters, we have the same danger that we see overtaking Saul and the people in this narrative, because there are consequences for rejecting the word of God and his commands. There are consequences to our sin. And so we need to examine ourselves this morning. How are we being attentive and humbly submitting ourselves to God's word in all areas of our lives just now? In our work? In our relationships? Boys and girls, what about for you as you seek to listen to your parents whom God has set in authority over you? as you go to school and you're with friends who may not know the Lord Jesus and love him and want to serve him? How are you responding to God's word? In our text, Saul is eventually, as we've mentioned, drawn into the actions of God's saving power. But as the following narrative will indicate, he's a man who's cut off from God because he has rejected God. The Lord is no longer there to sustain him, to guide him, to restrain him. May it not be so for us. May it not be so for us. May we not reject God's word, but rather may he grant us soft hearts to receive his word with gladness and joy, knowing that he saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ so that with thankful hearts we can respond with obedience. Well, that's Saul's folly. Let's look at Jonathan's faith briefly and then on to our final point. The contrast between Saul and Jonathan could hardly be greater, could it, in this passage? What does Jonathan do? Well, right away in verse 1, he initiates the action. He's courageous, isn't he? He's creative even in verses 8 and following in thinking about how he, how on earth will he and his armor bearer assault this fortified position on elevated ground? 
How will he do it? Well, look at verse 6. It's verse 6 that's the key to understanding Jonathan in this text. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do you hear what Jonathan has said there? Look very carefully at what he says. He begins with that little word, perhaps. It may be in other translations. Jonathan is not presumptuous here. He does not say, well, I'm an Israelite. The Lord will save me. In fact, he's bound to do as I wish him to do. That's not what he says. He says, perhaps, maybe, the Lord will just act on our behalf. He's not waiting for full assurance that the situation will turn out just as he wants it to before he acts in obedience and faith. He knows these are the Lord's enemies, the enemies of God's people. Something needs to be done. And so he steps out with a kind of courageous realism here. It's uh, it's a bit like the situation in Daniel chapter 3, in verse 18, where those men who are about to be cast into the fiery furnace are given one more chance to avoid the flames. And they say, look... Our God can save us from flames. You can throw us in the fire. Our God can save us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to submit to your idolatry. It's that kind of courageous reason that I think we see here in Jonathan. He is willing to be faithful to the Lord, trusting fully in the Lord, knowing that he can save, and yet moving ahead without full assurance of actually how it will turn out. It's a courageous kind of faithfulness. What else does he say there in verse 6? He says, Yahweh will work for us. The Lord will work for us. You see why he is able to be courageous. His courage is founded upon an informed faith. He knows who this Yahweh is. He knows this is the same Yahweh who has already routed the Philistines back in chapter 6, who again and again has proven himself more than able to defend his people and rout his enemies. He has an informed kind of faith that is focused on Yahweh, on the Lord as its object. That's the basis for his courageous faithfulness. It's not as though he's pulling himself up by his bootstraps and trying to talk himself into being courageous. He's, he simply is naturally so because he knows what kind of God it is whom he serves. And the last bit of what he says there in verse 6 further grounds it, doesn't it? For, because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter to him whether he's got two men against a troop. It doesn't matter to him if he's got a million men. It doesn't matter, in fact, Jonathan knows, if the Lord has no one willing to go for him. He's still able to save, because nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving. And that forms the basis of his courageous action. What begins with a realistic note of uncertainty, perhaps, maybe, ends with an absolutely certain faith in Yahweh's proven and tried character to save. This is a challenge for us, I think, as well this morning, to consider our faith, which, if you're like me, if you're like many of us, is often more wobbly than courageous. Often we tend to focus on ourselves rather than to fix the eyes of our faith upon the Lord. 
we tend to focus our eyes on our circumstances and what logically and rationally we think is possible rather than to remember who it is that has saved us from our sins, who has brought us from death to life, from darkness to light, who can change cold, stony hearts and give hearts of flesh. That's the Lord whom we serve. Nothing is impossible for him. And so that truth from verse 6 needs to ring in our ears this morning, ring in our ears this week. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. The tragedy is poignant, then, as we see this contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan would have made a great king, it seems, and yet he's not going to be given the opportunity to be so because of his father's unfaithfulness and disobedience. Saul's folly, Jonathan's faith, finally this morning, Yahweh, who is faithful to save. At the center of this narrative, as of the entire narrative of 1 Samuel, stands Yahweh, the Lord the one who is faithful to save. Let's think just a moment about verses 13 to 15. What is it that happens at the top of that cliff? After they go, as they go up over the top of those rocky crags, what happens? We're told they fell before Jonathan. They fell before Jonathan. It's it's ambiguous, isn't it? How did they fall? Was Jonathan swinging his sword? Well, it doesn't seem to be. It's actually his armor bearer who comes behind him, isn't it? Who strikes them down. In fact, I think we're meant to understand here, they didn't touch them, at least not initially. How did they fall? They fell before these men as they came up over the top because the Lord's power felled them like so many bowling pins smashed to the ground. This is exactly what we've come to expect from Yahweh, isn't it? As we read through our Old Testament, he is more to do this kind of thing. Takes great delight in leading the charge for his people. How else, you might ask, would it be possible for two men climbing over the clifftop to ever do such a thing? Surely the men on the top could strike them down. Surely they could cast stones down and knock them to their deaths. Surely there's no way this impregnable position could be taken. And yet it is because of the Lord's power. Not by many, not even by a few. But the Lord makes the first assault. Yahweh himself. And he continues the assault, doesn't he? He continues to rout his enemies. Verse 15, there was panic in the camp. There was trembling, an earthquake. This is the God of Sinai. This is the God of the judges, Deborah and Barak in Judges 4 and 5. This is the God of First Samuel 6. This is Yahweh who thunders against his people, who by verse 20 turns the enemy's swords against themselves so that they are slaying one another. And all that's left when Saul arrives with the cavalry is to do mopping up. That's all that remains. Yahweh, the great king, has descended in divine judgment on behalf of his weak and faithless people who are led by an ineffective and disobedient king. And he's done so to prove once again that he is powerful and he is mighty and he is faithful to save. The Lord is faithful to save. So as we close this morning, I want you to consider 
what that might mean for you in the coming week. This great truth that our God, the Lord whom we serve, that nothing can hinder him from saving. Nothing can hinder him from saving. For those of you who struggle with the thought that your own sin is too great, too great to be saved from, that sin that entangles you, against which you wrestle, you can never seem to shake it off. I want you to hear this truth this morning, that it is the Lord who can save you, the Lord who can work mightily in you by his power, the same power that we see at work in this text, the same power by which Christ was raised from the dead, that same power, we know, can work in us, can work in us to set us free from sin and death, to untangle us from those cords of sin and death, because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving If you are overwhelmed by your sin, if you realize that you too stand having rejected God's word and his commands, then turn to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace him by faith, knowing that he delights and is more than able to save you, because nothing can hinder him from saving. Or perhaps uh, you already know that well, you're reminded of that daily, and yet for you, the challenges are, as you go out into the work week, into your vocation, doing the things the Lord has called you to do, or wondering what the next thing the Lord is calling you to do, perhaps for many of you, you might wonder as well, is the Lord sovereign over my circumstances? Or does it feel a bit like I'm facing this massive crag of a clifftop? Well, then you too, I want you to remember this morning and hear very clearly, the Lord is more than able to deal with your circumstances. He has them well in hand. He is Yahweh, after all. He is sovereign, and nothing can hinder him from saving you or from guiding you in his good providence. Turn him by faith. Trust in him. Rely upon him for whatever that next step might be. Overwhelming circumstances, illness, uncertainty, sin. Nothing, brothers and sisters, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. Let's give him thanks as we pray.